for those of you too young to know, this internet phenomenon is, is a fairly recent thing. Um, to date myself, when I finished seminary in the early 1990s, I was typing my papers. In other words, it wasn't even on a, I, had, I got my first computer my last year in seminary. There was no email, there was no internet, there was no cell phones that weren't $8 billion a month, there were no texting. And there certainly wasn't the internet in the sense where there's the social media platforms where things spread like wildfire, where bad news travels and anybody with an opinion can say something stupid and you're forced to listen to it if you have an open Facebook feed. You know, it just wasn't like that in the real world. And as well, there, there, there wasn't the backlash that comes from failing publicly. When people blew it publicly before, there wasn't nearly as much shaming as what goes on now. And recently, a CNN article discussed the impact of the Internet in terms of shaming people by listing some examples. There was Victor Paul Alvarez, who last January, as a Boston reporter, wrote a brief news story containing a bad joke about Speaker of the House John Boehner and the weight of the Internet, at least the conservative portion of the Internet, was so heavy on him that he lost his job. He apologized. He said he was wrong. They fired him. He still hasn't been able to find work. Uh, there was Adam Mark Smith. Uh, a handful of years ago, there was this big Chick-fil-A controversy, and he was, of course, not liking Chick-fil-A all that much and rolled up on his lunch break to yell at somebody who was working at the window of Chick-fil-A, and that went viral, and he got fired. And uh, for some reason or other, the the community around him was so unkind as a result of his foolishness. They weren't very merciful or forgiving. He ended up having to sell his house. He lost his job. He moved to another city. I think the most telling, the most unbelievable story, but it's true, is that of Justine Sacco. She was a public relations executive who tweeted something before she left for Africa on a trip. Now, mind you, She had very few Twitter followers. She was a nobody and made a really foolish, rather racist tweet that said, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Now again, offensive. But how would somebody who had like 400 Twitter followers ever imagine what would follow? She gets on a plane 13 hours later, her phone has blown up, all her friends are now telling her she is the lead feed on everybody's Facebook page. She is the top trender on Twitter, and the world has come down on her like nobody's business. She lost her job. She came back to America, and people hated her, all for saying something stupid, but it it went crazy. The impact was unbelievable. All of these are worth condemning all of these foolish statements and unkind things that people would tweet or share. But author John Ronson, who's a British journalist and the author of the book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, says it's not really just. He says in his book that in centuries past, villagers would be cast out or dishonored, perhaps thrown in the stockades. Even in Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet letter, you wore the A, but for most, the punishment was finite. These days, it's not enough for someone who's screwed up to just be rebuked. Even an apology and remorse is not enough. People need 
or the masses need to just destroy that person. On social media, particularly Twitter, with its global reach, and, you know, in print, it's really hard to hear if somebody's trying to be ironic or sarcastic or funny. People are unbelievably unkind. A Catholic priest was quoted in the CNN article where he was talking about his observation that what starts out as disapproval ends up as complete shaming. Quote, there's a real cruelty that comes with this mob mentality. You can compare it to bullies in a schoolyard all ganging up on a person who for one second said the wrong thing. My point is that in our new world, we now see how quickly a bad choice of words can set your life ablaze, and this is just what James chapter 3 is talking about. So dense is the, the content of James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, that Brooks and I have decided to cut this into two pieces. And this week, I'm going to take the part where we talk about the power of the tongue. James starts, I think, appropriately his caution about the power of the tongue, its disproportional influence and its devastating impact by first and foremost addressing those of us, people like me, who want to teach and lead in a church by saying, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The tongue, the words of a mouth, are the chief tool of the teacher. So James obviously would start with the dangers associated with that. It's somewhat ironic because in 1 Timothy 3, 1, we're told that if you want to be a pastor, if you want to be a teacher, it's a good thing. If you want to be an elder, it's a noble thing. James is saying it's a dangerous thing too. Why? I mean, does God judge teachers more strictly? Some people interpret this passage that way, that God would actually be more strict with people who are teachers it's possible because we know that in Hebrews thirteen seventeen it says that elders must give an account for what they do with their lives. The, they have to give an account for the sheep they shepherd. I think largely, though, what James is saying is that people will judge teachers more strictly. That once you determine that God has called you to some leadership role, and you're going to lead people, that means you're going to have lots of eyes on you. And with lots of eyes on you comes lots of critique of you. And if you're not prepared for that, then you probably shouldn't do it. The old adage is, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, that's not scripture. Um, That's Ben Parker, Spider-Man's uncle. But the, the point is, really, all truth is God's truth, and, you know, we will take it where we can get it. And all seriously, James is setting out in this passage to follow up some directives that he gave us last James 2, which is that he said a living faith is a faith that is concerned about good works. In James 2.1 and 2.14, James elaborates on the importance of demonstrating Christ's character by our equal treatment of all people, and by our care for those who are in physical needs. But now James is going to force you and I to look within ourselves, to look and see with what, if what we say with our words pleases the Lord. And if by looking inside, we are to discover that there are many things that Jesus needs to do in our hearts to bring about 
things that will glorify him. James's argument for making what our mouths say a priority consideration is twofold, and those are the two things I'd like to share with you today from our passage. And the first is this. The power of the tongue is seen in its disproportional influence. And he first wants us, this is the first part of his argument, is we've got to grasp what we are using, what we have at our disposal. And so we begin in verse 2 of James 3. He says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, the imagery here is designed to show you two very powerful things that are actually controlled by something small. Now, in our day, we still recognize if you've ever gotten close enough to a horse, particularly a thoroughbred, if you've ever been out to Santa Anita Park, these are powerful animals. I mean, strong. Like, with one twitch of the neck, they could throw you 20 feet. I mean, these are beasts. And in, and in this day, in this agrarian first century culture, they were beasts of burden, and people knew them to be the strongest of animals, and these animals could be easily controlled by a very small stick you could put in their mouth and attach two ropes to each side of it. So he was trying to show them that this bit, this bridle, which is why he uses the same language. He talks about in, in verse 2 that the man, is a, a person who controls their tongue, obviously can bridle their whole body. He's, he's using a linguistic twist to then talk about horses and the bridle and the bit that you get into a horse's head. You can control this huge thing with something very small. Same can be said for ships. They're huge. Uh, Carolyn and I went on a cruise last summer. Uh, the, the ship gets steered by one person and one rudder that's on a cruise ship, probably the size of, you know, two people, three people. Big rudder, but compared to the ship, it's really small, and even smaller is the person controlling the steering wheel. James is saying, think of these things. These things are so easily moved and controlled. Disaster can come so easily from these things, and they're controlled by such small things. He's trying to get us to see the danger in our tongues, the power of our tongues. It's also important to recognize that James in this text is not implying that a person can be perfect. When he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body, what he is saying is that the tongue is that member of the body which we find most difficulty establishing self-control in. So consequently, James would say that if you've mastered the tongue, you've obviously mastered the whole body. But if you look deeper into what James is saying, we hear the echoes of Jesus' words about what comes out of our mouths. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words of our mouths are barometers for what is actually happening in our hearts. The things that come out of our mouths, bitter expressions, jealous 
expressions, boasting in ourselves. These things are all indicators that something is wrong inside. Something is broken and needs the healing of Christ. I'll give you an example. Uh, And this is a question particularly for women. Have you ever gotten the creeps because of something inappropriate that a man has said around you? And thank you for not communally saying amen. But this is a really common thing. I have a daughter who's in college, and I'm, like, scared for her because guys are just creepy. And if they don't know Jesus and they have no self-control, they just say what's on their mind. And with all the crap that's on the Internet and TV, you know what's on their mind. And so they can't help but speak it. Uh, Years ago when we planted our first church, there was a man who would come to our church, and he was a single man, and he would say things, and my wife wisely would go, that guy gives me the willies. And she wouldn't say this out loud. I didn't give her a microphone. She didn't say it in front of the church. But privately, she would advise her pastor husband, that guy gives me the willies. And, you know, it turns out like a decade later, he was arrested in this sting where he was soliciting minors. And, and so there's something about what comes out of people's mouths that tells you something's wrong. And it's not just the sexually perverted that are prone to showing what's in their heart by what they say aloud. All of us at some level are guilty of that, if you think about it. I'm about to go to a pastor's conference this week. And I can tell you that at pastor's conferences, you, you kind of get a feel for what's really going on in people's hearts by what they talk about. The ones who come there and they want to talk about how great their church is going and how, how big it is and how influential it is. And you can kind of get the idea that they're pretty proud of themselves. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, the guys that are like, I'm going to quit. I hate this. This is going really bad. You can tell what's going on in their heart too. You, you see, what goes on in our words tells a lot about what's going on in our hearts. I've known ministers, some of them, fairly well-known, if I mentioned their names, you'd know them, who casually, regularly mention which well-known people to whom they're connected, or brag about the size of their book collection, or find ways to wedge into conversation how effective their church is in terms of overall attendance, or happen to mention at every turn what their score on a certain proficiency exam was. See, ministers are almost as bad as everybody else. And you can tell that while they're not doing anything really sinful, there's something really sinful going on in their heart. All of these expressions manifest a heart that is longing for affirmation. But it's also evidence of a soul that hasn't found its satisfaction in Christ. It's something we're all guilty of doing. Do you often judge others? You have self-righteous speech come out of you? That person shouldn't be like that. I am so much better than that is effectively what you're saying. What does that say about your heart? If you find yourself always being the one who's the super critic because you are above everybody else, what does that say about what's going on in your soul? I am an expert in foolish speech, Uh, not because I'm a a, a communications professor at Providence Christian College, but because for the majority of my 51 years, I was stupid enough to say exactly what popped into my head every time it popped into my head because I just thought I was special enough that everybody should have to listen to it. The scriptures just call that person a fool. Immature people are so consumed with their perceived right to say something that they give no thought to whether or not it would be wise for them to speak up. Now, hopefully in my older years, I'm getting wiser. 
But the foolish person always says what's on their mind without any thought for whether or not they should. They always assume that others need, (laughs) arrogantly some assume, that others want to hear what they say. Foolish people often see themselves as more important to the situation around them than they truly are. And this is evidence of when we are trying to find our life in other ways other than the joy of being God's children and the contentment of generally, genuinely knowing and loving God because of the grace given to us in Christ. See, our words are a gift to us because they can signal to us when something is wrong, something needs to be healed, something we long for, we're looking for it. And our words express the depth of that desperation. We want life. And often we foolishly search for meaning and purpose in other things. And our words give us away. Do you exaggerate truth? That's a tough one for some. I don't lie. I just kind of stretch the truth. You know what that says? says that you just are desperate for people to affirm who you are. I just want somebody to tell me I'm good. God is saying, I want you to look to me for that. Use your words to indicate where your soul is dying for God to move in some significant way. Proverbs 29, 20, King Solomon wrote, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. In James 1.19, the apostle wrote to us earlier, Know this, my beloved brother, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Many years ago, when I was a Presbyterian pastor, I went to the General Assembly, and uh, this is a big gathering. My buddy Jeff just got back from it. Uh, A thousand or so pastors, and uh, I was this young, brash church planter, And two of my mentors, who were fairly well-placed guys, asked me to go to dinner with them at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Now, my budget never has included dinner at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. I'm a Subway guy, and I operate generally on a church planter's Subway budget. But I thought, this is a really cool opportunity, so I will actually go about, um, uh, I will go with them, and I'll figure out how I'm going to pay for this later, because I didn't want to miss this opportunity. And when I got to dinner... I realized that it wasn't just the two of them. It was like several of their cool, connected, very influential friends and me. And they were talking about this really high-level kind of stuff and theologically deep and just all this, like, experience. And they're talking, and I'm just sitting there eating my potatoes thinking, oh, please don't call on me. You know, that's it's that moment where you realize I'm in so far above my head. I, these guys, I, and sure enough, conversation. Somebody recognized that I hadn't been included and, uh, and asked me, you know, Chuck, what do you think? And all I can remember at that time was something my beautiful wife Carolyn said to me once, which was, when in doubt, say you're still thinking about it. <laughs> so I got my best look on my face and I went, I'm still processing all that I'm hearing. And they all said, wise, that's very wise. And they, you know, <laughs> Let me go back to my steak. <laughs> I was like, oh, woo, Diet Coke. You know, and I was like really excited that they let me go. It was probably the beginning of a sea change for me as a guy. It was like finally in my 40s realizing that, you know what, if I try to BS my way through this, they're going to figure out that I don't know what I'm talking about. So the best thing to do is just say, 
no earthly idea what we're talking about in some way and, and hope that they'll graciously let me sit with them. I got to tell you that this is the nature of our tongues and our mouths and the power that is contained therein. What we say has a tremendous, a much greater influence than what you think. This is true in our lives with the people we love. Uh, We say things that affect people, that hurt people in ways that we can't fathom because we haven't really discerned the power of the tongue. And so, in addition to its disproportional influence, James is going to help us see that the power of the tongue is also seen in its devastating impact. All right, this is going to be James' second point. We begin again with verse 5 of James 3. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. You want to know where this forest fire gets started? Well, the spark comes from hell, and we fan it into flame with our mouths. James is going to shift his direction of the argument at this point and start comparing the tongue to a spark that sets a forest on fire. And the source of this spark, as James has said, is evil. And as many of you know, the Ryers had to evacuate our home two weeks ago because of the wildfires in the San Gabriel Mountains above our house. And I have to tell you, this was kind of a fun experience. I know it sounds warped, but you know, it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hang out with your kids and you know, pack up your, the things you really need, you know, because getting evacuated is a really interesting sort of feeling. And so we sat out front of our house, and I was able to take some video shots down the street. One of our neighbors, the fire was right behind their house. And uh, we were standing out back there, and what you're seeing now is a pine tree that went up like that. A spark hit it, because you can see there's nothing else burning around it. An amber sort of flew in and just poof, lit this thing up. And, and in two minutes, this pine tree became like dust. A thousand degrees is what they said it would often get the heat up to. And, and it was already 106 degrees outside. It was a remarkable thing. James is trying to communicate to us that our tongues have been severely corrupted by the fall of mankind into sin. And that we're so fractured that now we have at our disposal a devastating weapon. And often we don't realize it. Like a child who finds their parents' loaded gun and doesn't have the experience or knowledge to understand just how devastating the impact of firing it will be, we are so broken that we often unknowingly harm others through what is a very small part of our bodies our tongues. We say cruel things while not realizing just how powerfully painful the words are. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but make no mistake about it, words can break my heart. Can you recall cruel things said to you by others? Parents that said things to you decades ago? Brothers and sisters, loved ones, friends, family, coaches, teachers, Do you remember painful stuff? Of course you do. I do. As a matter of fact, some of my most vivid memories are mean things people said to me, and I'm talking 30 and 40 years ago. I can remember them verbatim. 
This is the power of the tongue. This is its devastating impact. You might think it's just a small spark, but it can set somebody's life ablaze. I uh, actually shudder to think in light of what we read from Hebrews earlier about pastors having to give an account of how many people over the course of my two decades in pastoral ministry would have been hurt by me, by something I said or didn't say, by something that was communicated by me that hurt them, and now they can recall my words. And I, and I don't fear judgment, but I do know that one day I'll have to give an account. One day I'll have to actually confess again before God as I have already Man, I really blew that. A couple summers ago, Facebook friend requested a friend from high, uh, from high school, middle school. It was a girl I knew. She was just somebody that was in our class, and I thought it was interesting that she was there. And as soon as I got that out, I got a, uh, a message back from her that said, I just want to let you know that you, you really hurt me in junior high. You and those people that made fun of me. And I had to write back and say, you're right, I did. I was a cruel, egotistical, stupid little kid looking for affirmation, and I spoke really harsh, ugly words to you, and I ask you to forgive me, and I hope that you can, and I'll pray that you'd know that it wasn't you. It was a stupid little boy with a foolish tongue. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, Jesus takes the devastating impact we have with our words very seriously. We tend to, in Christian circles, sometimes make big to-dos about enormous moral issues without taking real stock of how cruel we are with our words, especially to those closest to us. We like to think of ourselves, foolishly, some of us as morally superior, when we haven't really taken really, really clear inventory about the kind of things we say and their effect on other people. But Jesus wants to change that. He wants to change the way we affect others so that they see him in us, he wants to forgive us for the things that we've done. He wants us to become a source of refreshing grace to others. And that may mean that by your simple confession of your sin or your, your harsh words towards somebody or your harsh attitudes towards your spouse or to children, it may be by that that you are putting out a fire you started. And it's because you've come face to face with the reality that God wants to express his grace and kindness through you. I was able to shoot another video uh, that I think captures our need for grace about as wonderfully as I've ever thought. This was behind the same house. This is a picture of the water copter coming in to put out the tree and its neighbors now that were on fire. See, our sinful nature has given us really a, a weapon of mass destruction and oftentimes our hateful and ugly speech necessitates God's need to not just forgive us for our sins, but help us 
to confess to others the ways we've hurt them. We've also set our worlds on fire with foolish speech born of a discontented and sinful heart. Our words have sparked devastation in our own lives and in the lives of others. The damage is often incalculable. So devastating is our sin that justification by grace through faith in Christ is the only way that we could conceivably have peace with God. Our tongue also gives us insight in all that is sinful inside of us. But Jesus very much desires to cover our sins. And if we've started a virtual forest fire in our lives, through our confession of sin to Him and through reconciliation with those whom we've spoken evil of and to, those fires can be extinguished. And He can be glorified. He can be seen as He brings healing and wholeness. See, the beautiful thing about recognizing just how bad our tongues are, just how powerful they are and how disproportional it is to how small it is, its influence, and and just how devastating its impact is, is that those tongues then remind us. They remind us of our deep need for Christ. No one who's done a thorough analysis of their speech patterns the things they say to others, about others, the things they say when no one's around that come flying out your mouth when you're angry or when you develop a political opinion that is different than the one you're watching on TV or when you're reading the comments section of your favorite website. What kind of things come flying out of your mouth? All those things indicate to us a deep need for Christ, a need for His forgiveness, a need for His healing deep inside. And this is why Paul celebrated in Romans 5 and James has reiterated again that we are made whole in Christ alone. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, I'm thinking about this, and I'm excited to say that when we come face to face with something in our lives that is really troubling, and we feel that sense of grief about it, that's actually a really healthy sign. It's a really healthy sign because what it means is God is now working in your heart to bring about something that will not only please Him, but significantly improve the quality of the relationships in your life and the impact you have on people for Him. And today we, we are going to take communion as we do every week here. And it really is an opportunity for some of us to come face to face with our need for His grace in our lives. Not just to forgive us for the bad things we said, but to heal those spaces inside that have been looking to other things other than him. And our words have been the indicators that that is actually taking place. This is a moment. It's a moment for you as an individual. It's a moment for us collectively as a church to really ask God to do some deep surgery in our souls. And hopefully, by his grace, in the end, it produces words that are full of mercy and full of grace. Let's pray to that end, shall we? Our Father, every time we come 
to the word we're humbled because it once again communicates that without Christ we have no hope. And we're thankful that now we can find mercy and forgiveness, that that is now available to us. And we pray that we would respond to this prompting, this conviction, this sense of guilt, this sense of remorse by acknowledging what's true. We have been careless with something as powerful as the words of our mouth. We have been harsh with loved ones and hurt them. And when no one's around, we've said things that indicate that something's just not right in our soul, that we're not looking to you. We're looking to whatever that seems to indicate. Jesus, some of us need deep healing in this area. We can't manufacture that. And good words will only result from hearts that have genuinely been changed by the reality of who we are in Christ. Bring this healing to my friends today as they come to the...